This is Emily Pazzi with National APA, and we are here at the APA Virginia Conference um, on July 20th, 2015. Uh, George, we're going to start with you today. Uh, the theme of the APA Virginia Conference is resiliency. Why did you feel this was important to focus on? Uh, well, of course, we're in Norfolk, and Norfolk um, is um, the, the second most at-risk city uh, in the U.S. for relative sea level rise. And so it's the sort of thing that we're paying attention to on, on a daily basis. Um, but much larger than that, um, as part of our participation in the 100 Resilient Cities program, we're learning to think about resilience and we're learning to think about um, the, the, the concepts that uh, we as planners need to focus on in a broader term. Uh, traditionally, we have thought in terms of shocks. Um, the big storm, the, 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 the earthquake, um, the, the major event, um, and you know we see them on CNN all the time. But through our work with the Rockefeller Foundation's 100 Resilient Cities program, we've begun to realize that the chronic stresses, things like unemployment, um, poor educational achievements, um, the issues of uh, economic inequality, we're beginning to realize that those issues probably are even more important for resilience than dealing with those those chronic shocks um, and or, or those those instant shocks. So, our feeling in developing this conference was to try to share that vision uh, with the planners in Virginia and and those from the other states that are attending the conference. And. Can you talk a little bit more about the current efforts underway to strengthen Norfolk's resilience to rising sea levels and these other stressors that we were talking about? Yeah, so we adopted um, a new comprehensive plan, um, and in fact it's an award-winning comprehensive plan. Uh, part, of, part of the reason it won an award is that it starts to focus on things like uh, sea level rise and uh, the issues of resilience around that. Uh, but we realize, A, there's more work to do, and, uh, but also as part of that, we've begun some additional efforts. The first is uh, we're rewriting the zoning ordinance of the city of Norfolk, um, and one of the key components of that is we want it to be the most resilient zoning ordinance uh, that's out there, um, and we want it to be a model that other people look to um, and, and think about uh, using as, as they're doing their work. Um, we have engaged the Urban Land Institute and done a uh, technical uh, panel with them uh, for part of our city, the area we call Fort Norfolk, um, to look at how can that area become a model for experimenting with some potential solutions um, in a rising water environment. Um, we've recently completed the Dutch Dialogues, Dutch Dialogues Virginia, it's the second Dutch Dialogue that's uh, been held in the U.S., the first being in New Orleans, and um, we looked at that as a way to begin not only ourselves, but helping our citizens and um, leaders understand that our future is bright, but our future is living with water, not trying to keep the water out, but finding ways to make an amenity out of the water that is coming. Um, and finally, we're participating in the uh, National Disaster Resilience Competition um, that, um, that HUD is, is putting on. Um, we've, we've made it through the first round, and we're now working on the second round. 
though. We're focused on a lot of different things here. Um, go ahead. Sure. I, I think one of the things um, that George just highlighted so nicely by effectively not mentioning 100 resilient cities in this whole conversation about all the good work that they're doing around resilience is exactly the kind of um, interventions and partnerships we're looking for at 100 resilient cities um, to partner with cities. So Norfolk has embraced this idea of resilience and they've begun their own discovery about what the challenges are for their community and in the process they've begun to form their own partnerships, they're having their own conversations around all these different topics and, and they're really partnering with us in the sense of we are giving them perhaps the excuse to have the conversation but it's their conversation and then the second piece is when they need some resources or guidance we're able to connect them to this greater network of cities around the world and resources of people that are participating in the program and it's been really a great partnership for us and watching how Norfolk has begun to interpret what it means for them um, and we're really excited to see where it's going to go. The one thing we do know is all the work is going to be really hard and we're only really getting started, but I think Norfolk is off to a really exciting start that's going to really lay down um, a great vision for what all the other cities in the network will be doing. So I'm going to jump to a question I had planned for later. You mentioned the Dutch Dialogues. I actually had a chance to do a podcast with Dale Morris and David Wagner um, on Friday, and we talked about the Norfolk um, Dutch Dialogue uh, workshop, and they were talking about what they thought it meant for the community. Um, tell me again, go a little bit deeper about how the city of Norfolk first connected um, with the embassy um, and how the partnership is shaping efforts to build a more resilient community. Well, I think, you know, it's throughout most everything there's always these fortuitous accidents and, and the fortuitous bumping into to people at, at um, times that you're, you're not expecting and um, in our case um, our deputy city manager uh, Ron Williams um, uh, quite literally bumped into Dale Morris at a water, water <laughs> conference um, and that began, be, began the conversation um, between Norfolk and uh, the Royal Dutch Embassy about the, the concept of bringing a, a Dutch dialogue to Hampton Roads. Um, obviously, um, the Dutch Embassy is, is interested in um, the, the Dutch dialogue component, um, not only as a way of information sharing, but quite honestly, um, the Dutch are, view themselves as the world's water experts, and uh, so they see it as, as economic development for the Netherlands. And um, so that's um, a how, how we began the, the conversation um, and it expanded to a, a regional discussion about um, resilience and um, the, the whole concept of, of how does one live at sea level in a rising water environment. And uh, let me see, a final question for you, George. Why was it important to the city to be recognized as one of Rockefeller Foundation's 100 Resilient Cities? Um, validation, quite simply. It, it validates um, where we had already been, but it turns out that it's so much more. I mean, not only did it validate the fact that we were actually on the forefront of, of thinking, but the resources brought to us 
um, by the Rockefeller Foundation um, and the other 100 Brazilian cities. I mean, it's a, a very collegial and collaborative type of, of approach. Um, those resources have enabled us to think well beyond where we thought we already were innovative and we realized we were just beginning to scratch the surface. So um, we now view, I know it's hard for folks to, to focus on, but we view sea level rise or the relative sea level rise in Norfolk as an opportunity. It's not a threat, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to reimagine and re-envision the city of Norfolk into becoming that vibrant, vital 22nd century city that we know it's going to be. We have the world's largest naval base. We have the second largest port um, in, on the East Coast. Um, those things are going to continue to be here. Um, just you know, national and economic imperatives mean that those places will continue to exist. So because they're going to continue to exist, Norfolk is going to continue to exist, and we're going to be even better 100 years from now than we are today because we're seizing this opportunity to reinvent ourselves. You know, status quo is not, not acceptable. And because we're able to, with our leaders and, and our citizens, understand that the status quo is not an acceptable option, we can imagine how we can be better. That was a wonderful answer <laughs> and a great transition um, over to Andrew now and more about the 100 Resilient Cities campaign. Andrew, tell us how this started, what was the idea behind it, and really what it is. Sure. So 100 Resilient Cities uh, initiative was pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation. It's part of their $100 million plus commitment to help cities around the world build resilience. The idea came off of a lot of work that the foundation had done both in cities and also around the concept of resilience. And this idea that cities really need to be thinking about um, resilience in a proactive way because we know for whatever reason shocks and stresses are happening and impacting cities more often and when they are happening they're happening at, at um, greater levels and intensity than they've ever happened before. But at the same time there's a mass movement around the globe urbanization and people are moving to cities because cities are very exciting places and important places, places of economic opportunity, places of connectivity um, and um, culture and just energy. So there's this movement to move into cities but at the same time cities are becoming more dangerous and more at risk and when you have that great number of people living there the impact to the society when something bad happens is, is significant but also poor and vulnerable people are typically the ones who suffer at a disproportionate rate. So the foundation said, how do we help cities? And they wanted to solve two things for cities. And the main thing that we're set up to do is help cities deal with the fact that they're complex. Mm -hmm. So by giving the city funding to hire a chief resilience officer, who will be a high-level employee working closely to, with the mayor to work across government silos in and with, in, both in and outside of government, and bringing together the right people and being a champion and a leader and an implementer for the city. That's critical, so that helps to solve some of the complexity piece, right? But also helping the city identify what their challenges are helps the city better communicate to the outside world what they're trying to solve for. And by able to say, in Norfolk's case, that we're a city that wants to learn how to live in changing water situations, that makes it easy for them to connect with the Dutch dialogue. Mm -hmm. If Norfolk's not able to realize that that's one of the challenges or something they're willing to accept, 
then they can't go off and make that connection. And what we look to do is help connect cities in a more pro proactive and accelerated rate with partners on the philanthropic side, academic side, and on the um, in the private sector to help bring in resources to the cities that match what their goals are for their building of resilience. If all goes well, we're going to have 100 cities that have laid down the foundation of what it's like to practice resilience, what it's like to integrate a chief resilience officer into the practice of the local governance, and really create some blueprints that will help other cities begin to um, copy the practice and begin building resilience in their communities. I'm curious, what does it take to qualify as one of the 100 resilient yeah. cities? So I'm glad you asked that question. Um, Tomorrow, we're going to announce the third challenge oh. and final challenge of the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative, at least for now. Um, and we'll be putting out an application, and what cities do is they fill out the application, and there's a panel of judges that decide which cities are qualified. And the application is not really about tell us how great your resilience is, because the idea is here that we're making up something as we go along here. We're really embracing a lot of what's already in place but repackaging it as a, as a new opportunity that can have greater impact. So what we're looking for is cities that have a couple things. One, we're looking for cities that are willing to take up the challenge. Norfolk clearly said they were willing to do that. We know we have to do things differently if we're going to be a city that's a vibrant, exciting place in the 22nd century. Two, we're looking for someone that, of consequence to say that. So the people we're looking for the mayor and the city manager to show real leadership. And in Norfolk's case, both the mayor and city manager have committed to this program in a very significant way and have really helped integrate the challenge uh, and the work into the city. So we want to have cities be able to do that. Three, we want cities that recognize that um, something bad is, is going to happen to their city. So cities that typically get that are cities that have actually had something bad happen to them. So often a city that has a regional, a regional uh, recent uh, challenge, whether it's a shock or stress, are cities that are more open from a citizen's perspective and a business perspective for change and management around that. So when we get cities that have all those, those three components, we then want to make sure that the leadership's stable, that there's not going to be transition in government in a year, 18 months. You want to see a perspective where the city has time to actually begin integrating and challenging these thoughts and working with them. Um, and then you really want to make sure um, that the city is, is, is willing to understand that our partnership with them is not a typical funder-donor partnership. And really, at the end of the day, even though it's part of a $100 million commitment to cities and building resilience, what we're giving each city is actually not a lot of money. They're not getting enough to build a new bridge. They're not getting enough to really hire tons and tons of new people and done, do tons and tons of planning. What they are getting is enough to spark a catalyst movement within the city. And we're looking for cities that recognize that if they're going to be successful at becoming a resilient city, then it's not going to be because of our grant. Mm -hmm. It's going to be because of their hard work. And the idea that Norfolk has people like George committed and working on this program who you know, isn't the chief resilience officer shows how important it is to have that type of high-level commitment throughout. And that doesn't happen by accident. That happens a lot with leadership. And so it's critical for the leadership to be um, bought into this partnership in that way. So do you feel that this is a model of city and philanthropy working together um, is transferable to other cities? Yeah, I think um, there's a couple things here that are transferable. I think cities want to do the hard things, but sometimes it's hard 
to do the hard things. <laughs> and part of the reason is, is cities are measured on their efficiency, and their efficiency is in how well do you manage that, that chronic stress that's building over time that's going to completely devastate your city. There's no indicator like that, I don't think, in Norfolk. But there are, there are indicators like how long did it take to process that payment? How long did it take to pave that street? How much did the asphalt cost that you were putting in place? How, how quickly did you respond to that three-on-one call and message? So that's kind of where the trend is for cities on, on the mac, micro management level. Mm -hmm. But how do you integrate these macro trends and these macro thinking into the micro business? So that's something that um, becomes a lot harder. And with our grant, and because it's awarded through a challenge process, it gives the city leadership the ability to step up and say, hey, we're willing to be leaders. We want to be in the forefront of this. We are ready for this challenge. And then when they get accepted into the program, a couple things happen. One, it gives them that excuse to begin having the conversation. Mm -hmm. But two, they're immediately linked, as George said, to these other cities that are part of this program. And you can't ignore water when Rotterdam's your partner, because they're going to tell you all about water, and they're going to change the way you think about it. You can't ignore water when New Orleans is your partner, because mm -hmm. they're going to tell you all about water. And it just changes how you think, and it also points you in directions of ways that the same problem you have has been tackled and challenged um, successfully by other cities. So that's the model that we're using. Now, I think the partnership for philanthropy here, and one that philanthropy um, is thinking a lot about, and I think you know, the Rockefeller Foundation has done some more of this, is this challenge concept, this idea that there isn't a lot of money and there's not enough money to make to solve all the problems, but if we can leverage the money in a way that begins to catalyze and, and energize the city to bring more resources to the table beyond the city government, Piece, but also including private sector and civil society, you begin to see a much greater commitment and partnership. And ultimately, the Norfolk solutions, like I said before, are going to be driven by Norfolk much more than they're going to be driven by the, you know, the 100 resilient cities effort. But it's going to be framed through that engagement, and it's going to be through the partnership with my organization and the partnership with the other cities that's going to really define this. So. Um, that's what I think is replicable, mm -hmm. and I hope that more cities find opportunities where they can leverage themselves to, to challenge those tough questions. So, obviously, the big takeaway from this campaign and Norfolk's involvement is that it's a, it's a network and it's all about the relationships and partnerships that are coming out of this campaign. And, I mean, just last week, um, I know APA was following this really closely. The Rockefeller Foundation announced the new AmeriCorps pilot program, and it's aimed at expanding vulnerable communities' capacities to address resilience to climate change. And I know you mentioned that earlier in your opening remarks, how oftentimes those communities are the ones that are kind of left out to dry. Um, so tell us more about that effort, and tell yeah. us how that kind of plays into sure. this so, existing framework. Great. So the uh, Resilience Corps, I think is what they're calling it, is mm -hmm. a really exciting initiative done with the federal government and um, cities of service and, yeah. and the Rockefeller Foundation. And I think it's this recognition that, you know, one, there's a lot of energy around resilience, but it's still being defined. Two, cities are eager to kind of engage in it, but they need some additional resources. So this provides some really good energy on the ground to help cities begin to tackle those challenges of, of, of understanding exactly what their challenges are and, and going off and, and doing the hard work. Um, but I think it also provides a blueprint for people that potentially could be core members about sending them a message about helping them understand that 
resilience is a real issue and it's a real topic and it's the kind of thing that you need to incorporate into whatever professional aspirations you do have. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be a planner, how great would it be for people to be applying to planning school after spending two years as a, as a core fellow around resilience? Because their perspective, I think they're going to bring, and I'm curious, George, maybe your perspective is different, but like this holistic view and understanding how everything fits together usually takes years and years and years of work and projects and building relationships. But if you can get that at the start of your career and bring that in, I think it would make you a much more effective um, practitioner when you come out of school and then practitioner into the long term. I don't know. No, you're, you're absolutely spot on. Um, the, you know, part of the problem we have um, in our profession is that uh, people go and get an undergraduate degree and then they go off to grad school and they get a, a graduate degree and then they come out into the workplace um, and they know a little bit about what they read in a whole lot of different books and um, how that actually gets applied in the real world, um, how those synergies that we're, we're talking about um, of, of the relationships, how those are built um, and how you utilize them, um, you, you, don't, you don't pick that up for a while. And um, so you know, I've long been a, a firm believer that, that college is wasted on 18-year-olds and if you can get some real-world experience before making your choices about how, you, um, how you're going to spend your life, what your career path is going to be, I think you're a lot better prepared for that career path um, and, frankly, to, um, to, to accept the lessons and, and, and learn the, uh, what, what the, your professors are trying to teach you in college. And I think, you know, you kind of you kind of answered this, but just directly, what is the role of philanthropy in helping cities to become resilient? You know, I think there's a lot of great work going on in the United States, especially with philanthropy and engaging with cities. And I think um, if philanthropy can be viewed as kind of, you know, when I think they're at their best, they're kind of leading. And I think we have a real interesting kind of paradigm that's out here in the United States where the federal government has a lot of money, but they can't work with cities so well. I think the HUD program and the NDRC is an example of, of trying to break that down, but a lot of that's still at county level and runs through states. Um, all the transit dollars run through states for the most part. Um, you know, so the federal government's relationship to cities is, is very distant. But yet a lot of the problems and a lot of the, the people live in cities. I think 90% of America's population lives like on a coastal waterway or, or in a river, right? And the other piece of that is cities are really interesting because they're small enough, even at the biggest sizes in New York where I worked, but they're small enough where you can actually get things done. And you're actually in charge of getting things done, which is the more important piece. But you also have someone who's in charge. And, but they're also big enough that they can have outside impact. So they can have outsized impact. They can impact not only the city, but the region. And they are really the catalyst and the leader of their communities. So, you know, our partnership with Norfolk in many ways is a partner directly with Norfolk, but Norfolk is part of a much greater community. Um, so Hampton Bays. Hampton Roads. Hampton Roads. <laughs> <laughs> in Hampton Roads. Um, and the idea of, of Hampton Roads being a much greater contributor to the greater Virginia um, to the Commonwealth of Virginia is, is really important. And the idea that cities are kind of at that nexus, but yet there's not a lot of resources for them. I really see the role of philanthropy picking up kind of
kind of that relationship and helping to partner with cities and lead them down in a direction that that pushes the cities to think differently, challenge themselves differently, and ultimately act differently um, with the goal of, of making many of their issues better. Um, resilience, I think, is one that covers a lot of those topics that are being worked on, but there's lots of great efforts happening all over the, the country in philanthropy in cities. Well, I want to say thank you to you both. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I know that APA uh, we'll continue to watch this partnership and the ones that grow out of it um, as, a, as a model for the future. Thank you. Thank you.